0: The way it is printed here in the New King James Bible would indicate that as well, that perhaps this is something that was sung or even chanted by the early church. When you think of it in that light, if you have ever been down in the catacombs under the city of Rome, you could probably picture, as I can, The people of God gathered in groups singing statements such as this statement or chanting what we read here in this 16th verse. I would like you to read it with me out loud starting with the introduction to the song which is the first part of verse 16. If you have it, just read out loud with me. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That's a great creed, isn't it? And it is very, very possible that this is exactly what the early church shared as they met together, because it's kind of the gospel in miniature. We think of John 3.16 as the gospel, and here is another 3.16, 1 Timothy 3.16, the gospel in miniature, God manifested in the flesh. God justified in the Spirit, God seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Of course, reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back a few pages to the book of Philippians, the second chapter, verses 6 through 11, and let us read these as well as a companion to 1 Timothy 3.16, Philippians 2, 6-11. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise the Lord. What a passage about our blessed Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we have one verse that perhaps emphasizes the main doctrines of our faith, more than any other in all of Scripture. We might ask ourselves the question, why? Why is this placed in this particular passage of Scripture? Well, you must understand what the church was going through when it was written. There was much false teaching going on when Timothy became a leader in the early church. There were false doctrines and there were false teachers. It seems that whenever the wind of the Holy Spirit blows and the person of Jesus Christ is being made manifest, there are always those around who seem to be on the scene to spread false doctrines to talk about false Christs. And that was the case when this passage of Scripture was given. So in that light, it had to be there as a warning to Timothy to follow the teaching that had been given by Revelation. And if you will read that in that light or in that concept, I think it will mean a lot more to you. What will keep us on track? What will keep us from diverting to things that really don't matter? The basics, the things that really do count. And the things that really do count are the things that Paul talks about here in this passage of Scripture. How important it is today that we know what we believe and that we are able to share that, even in simplistic forms, to those who inquire, or to those we have opportunity to share our faith with. Now, before we get to the outline, there are six things that we're going to look at here from these wonderful statements in verse 16. Let me cover what I call some preliminary truths with you that lead into verse 16. I refer particularly to the mystery that is referred to in this passage of Scripture. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That is not the first time that word mystery occurs in the New Testament. I want to walk you through very quickly where this word occurs in other passages and under different settings. First of all, looking at verse 16, we discover that the Christian faith is divine revelation. If you look up the word mystery, it means hidden or concealed, now revealed. Something that at one time was hidden or concealed, which has now been made known. So there was the mystery of the Gentiles. Just jot these down over there in the right hand side of the paper if you want. Romans 11, verse 25 and 26. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 you find that word mystery again connected with the Gentiles. Right after the mention of the word mystery, you find this reference. They have become fellow heirs of the gospel. So the mystery of the Gentiles is the mystery of being grafted in. It's the mystery of adoption. Once it was not understood, once it was a hard thing to even conceive, especially in the Jewish mind. But now, as the revelation unfolds in the New Testament, the mystery of the Gentiles is made known. We have become fellow heirs of the gospel. Not because we came out of the loins of Abraham, but because we were born by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith we were grafted into the true vine, and we became part of all that God made possible to man. Thank God for that mystery now revealed. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, you have the mystery of transformation. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the great chapter about resurrection. The word mystery occurs in that chapter. Behold, I show you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be Change in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. One time, un- misunderstood, couldn't conceive of it. But after the resurrection of Jesus and the revelation of the Holy Spirit on the resurrection of Jesus, the mystery of transformation no longer is a mystery. We know that as he was changed and brought forth in a glorified body, we, too, are going to be brought forth out of the dust of the earth and given a glorified body, and we shall traverse his universe and serve him through the ages of eternity. The mystery of transformation. Without hindrance, we will serve the Lord. The third mystery is in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. It's called the mystery of Christ and his church members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, as verse 30 declares in Ephesians 5. One time it was a thing not to be understood, but Jesus Christ manifested to the world the truth of how his body, the church, would be so united with him and so brought together with him that all the world would know that Jesus was Lord to the glory of God the Father. As the revelation of the Holy Spirit came to that early church and Paul began to write, We are members one of another, No one can say to the other member, I have no need of you. We are all important in the economy of God. We are all part of his body, part of his flesh, and part of his bones. What was a mystery has now been revealed by the revelation of the Holy Ghost. We understand about his church and his body. The fourth mystery is the mystery of iniquity. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. It speaks about a man of sin and about a time of sin or lawlessness. And that spirit would be at work until the restrainer is taken out of the way. As we move closer and closer to the day of the Lord, we find it easier and easier to understand the mystery of iniquity. That things are going to grow increasingly worse The spirit of antichrist already manifests itself in our world until one day the man of sin himself, the antichrist, who will claim to be as God, will be known to those remaining here on earth. And the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that lawless spirit or that antichrist, Spirit will work until the restrainer is taken out of the way and the church being gone, the Antichrist spirit will have freedom to do whatever until Jesus comes back with his church to establish his millennial kingdom. A mystery? Not anymore. We're living in the day when that could happen. The mystery of iniquity. We see iniquity abounding, but are we worried? Are we shaking our heads with fear? Are we wringing our hands, wondering what's going to happen? Absolutely not. The mystery has been revealed. We know that the spirit of Antichrist is climbing. It is increasing. But Jesus is in control. And one of these days, we're going to be taken out of this, and he can do whatever he wants. Hallelujah. He can even have the death on this building. It's fine with me. And then the fifth mystery is the one that we're discussing tonight in 1 Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness. All the truth in the Bible is given by divine revelation. It is not a matter of human speculation, never. Is it a matter of human speculation? It is a thing of divine revelation, and the mystery of godliness is this mystery that is unfolding here. Once we couldn't understand it but now it has been revealed to us by the divine Holy Spirit. So, thank God for a mystery that has been uncovered. Can you say amen? Is that clear to you? Those five references to mystery no longer are really mysteries. They are things once concealed, now revealed by the Holy Spirit in divine revelation. Now, revelation comes by the blessed Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Matthew 11.25, You have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. So nobody has to sit here in ignorance. You can accept the revelation of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Now, according to verse 16, Revelation is based on historical facts concerning Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we're going to look at as we go down these six points. Now, what does it mean when it says, without controversy? Let me just interpret that for you before we take those six points. Here's what it means. I just love this. Is it all right if I share it with you? What it really means you want me to or shall I just move on? Would you like to know what it really means? It means no doubt about it. That's what it means. I love that. No doubt about it. If you have doubt, you have not had the revelation yet. And you ought to ask the divine spirit of God to reveal to you what it is. Because that's what this means when it says, without controversy. This is a revelation that leaves no doubt about it. You don't have to wander around like a blind man. You are absolutely sure of this revelation of Jesus Christ. Philip says in his translation, no one can deny it. And I think when we get through the six points, you'd have to say, how could they? And then it leads to godliness. And that means holy living. That's why I said this morning this is such a vital passage of Scripture for us to sit in on. Because it leads to holy living. It helps you in a wicked world to find answers. The people who say we don't need doctrine or creeds don't know what they're talking about. Because the more doctrine you have, The more creed you have, the more faith you have, the more holy living you're going to have, because you can't be any greater than what you believe. We become what we believe. So if you have a strong faith in God, which leads to holy living, that creed or that doctrine becomes very, very important to your daily life. Now, let's take a look at the six things that are listed here in this song or this chant, which was a part of the early worship of the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know what their tune was, but the first stanza went, When God was manifested in the flesh. That's what they sang. That's what they said. And they were right on. It was based on revelation. His life did not begin at Bethlehem. He was from the beginning of the beginnings. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came out of his ivory palaces, Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time had come. He left the position of glory with the Father and manifested himself in the flesh here upon earth, born as a babe, conceived by the Holy Ghost, God was manifest in Jesus Christ. Salvation depends on this fact. You have no salvation unless you have this truth. Salvation, according to Acts 8:37 when the eunuch spoke to Philip, is like this, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What doth hinder me to be baptized? It was so emphatic. It was so clear. That's what it must be from our lips. Every one of us, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Salvation depends on that fact. He is God. Manifest in the flesh. That's where the creed of the church begins. God walked here. God lived here. God ate here. God slept here. God had pain here. God died here in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God became flesh and took our place, dying for our sin and for our iniquity. Hallelujah. Romans 10, 9, and 10 declares it as well. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. John 1, verse 12, As many as received him, to them gave he the power or the ability to become the sons of God, even to them that what believe on his name. What a place to start a creed. Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Godliness came down into manhood. And it is a mystery, isn't it, when you talk about God and man being joined together, that he was uniquely God, but he was also uniquely man. That he had hunger, and he had thirst, and he suffered pain, but he never sinned. The God part of him manifested itself even through his humanity. Mystery. But our whole faith and our whole future is dependent upon our declaration that God was manifest in the flesh. You know the devil can't handle that. When we have circumstances where people think they are demon-possessed or when people ask me, Pastor, what can we do about this friend or relative we think they're demon-possessed? I always tell them to give them a test. There's a simple test that you can give to determine whether it's demon-possession or if it's just oppression if it's coming from the inside or if it's coming from the outside, and that is ask them to confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. The, the devil won't confess that. To quote John eight thirty six, that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Have them quote Revelation 12, is it verse 11, that we testify that in his blood we have found the forgiveness of our sins and life and meaning in him. The devil won't say the word blood. The devil won't talk about Jesus being manifest in the flesh. He will avoid that subject completely. The devil will never say, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He just will not repeat those statements Out of the word of God, he would not repeat 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. And so you just sit down with the person and say, God was manifested in the flesh. Repeat it after me several times. God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the living Son of God. Say it. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If they say it without any difficulty, you don't have possession. The devil won't say it. You have maybe oppression, you have something coming from the outside, but you don't have possession, and there's a big, big difference. But if they stumble around, and they won't say it, or they get partway through, and they stop, and they get confused, and strange utterances begin to come, then you've got a problem. But that's the way to test it. Test it with the Word of God. Test it with the creed of the church. God was manifested in the flesh. The devil just doesn't want to say that because he knows that's his doom. So you try it. See if it doesn't work. It's never failed. Works every time. Because Satan will not confess that. That's the thing he hates the most. Number two. I don't know how they sang it, but the second verse was, Justified in the Spirit. I can hear it rumbling through the catacombs almost raising the dead. He was justified by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means the Holy Spirit gave proof of Christ's claims. Now those claims are important to us if we're to understand the victory that is ours. Look at your notes. I have put them down here so you won't lose them with the scriptural attachments so you can go back and review them in your spare moments. He was born of the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. That's his temptation. The Bible says he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit and he came out of the wilderness by the same Spirit. He served in the power of the Spirit. Calvary was endured in the power of the Spirit and the Spirit vindicated him in the resurrection from the dead. All of those scriptures that are listed there tell us point two of the creed is so vital to our freedom and to our spiritual life declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, 4. Oh, friends, if you just get a hold of these simple little points that Paul gives to Timothy to fight off the false doctrines and the false Christ, You will find new liberty in Jesus Christ because it's all true. It's all absolute. The Holy Spirit was involved in every step of Jesus' life. He didn't live in the power of the second person. He lived in the power of the third person. He was justified by the Holy Spirit of God, not by himself. Somebody else confirmed him, if you will, at every point of his life, including his great resurrection from the dead. He didn't come out of the grave by his own power. He came out of the grave by the power of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a plan. That's why we say, by the time you get through with this, nobody should doubt any of it. It's too incredible to doubt. Thirdly, Jesus was seen of angels. Why is that important? Well, I don't know except that the angels were around it seems every time a major event happened. Confirmation? Witnesses? Whatever. They announced his birth in Luke the second chapter. They attended his life and ministry. When he hungered 40 days Forty nights, the angels ministered unto him. They were watching over him. In First 1 Peter 1.12, it says that the angels observed his passion. In his manhood, he could only go so far. And the angels of God attended him. Matthew 28, the angels proclaimed his resurrection. The angels sat on that tomb where those grave clothes were, and said, He is not here. He is risen, as He said. Hallelujah. Seen by angels. And in Acts 10, verses 1 through 11, His ascension, His coming again, all confirmed by angels. So exciting when you get a hold of all of these separate points in the doctrine that is given us by the Apostle Paul. That should be Acts 1, I said 10. Acts 1, 10 and 11. The angels confirmed this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The angels were there to announce that and to declare that as a confirmation that what was happening was absolutely in the divine order of God and it would always become a part of the church's creed. Fourth thing that Paul declared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus has been preached to all the nations. Who else could it be said is preached to all the nations? No one. Only Jesus. Only Jesus bears the witness to every nation on the face of the globe. And when the time runs down, for man on earth, who will be the central figure, who will be the focal point? It will not be Hare Krishna. It will not be Muhammad, It will not be Confucius. It will not be Buddha. It will be Jesus Christ. His throne is established in Jerusalem as a sign to all the nations of the earth that Jesus is Lord, not somebody else. It's Jesus Christ. He is preached to all the nations of the earth. If you've tied into Jesus, you've tied into the eternal. The Bible declares He's everybody's Savior. The book of Matthew ends with a challenge to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every last creature because He's everybody's Savior. He appeals to the black, the yellow, the red, the white, the young, the old, the in-between. He's everybody's Savior. He shall be preached in all the world for a witness, and then shall the end come. First Timothy two four says, He desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What a wonderful Savior He is. That's part of our creed. We want to make Him known. We've a story to tell to the nations, the songbook says. And indeed we have, because he's the world's savior. Number five, as Paul listed the creed, and they sang it and repeated it, not only was he preached among the Gentiles, but believed on in the world. This simply means that he's the savior of all who believe. We touched on this this morning, but God has revealed His plan through His Son, manifest in the flesh, vindicated or justified by the Spirit, seen of angels preached everywhere, but only those who believe will inherit salvation. Have you believed? Have you embraced? Have you trusted with all your heart this gospel, Let me just for a moment remind you of the story of the tightrope walker from France who came to the Niagara Falls and stretched his wire across the falls and at an announced time was going to walk across the falls on the wire, which he did to the applause of thousands of people. Then he picked up a bag of sand, heavy wet with the spray of the falls, put it on his shoulder, walked back across the falls carefully, one step at a time, to the great applause of the people. Then he said to the crowd, You have seen me walk across by myself. You have seen me carry the weight of a man across, and you have applauded. Now I would like a volunteer so that I can carry you with me across the falls. At that moment, all you heard was the crash of the falls. There was nobody jumping up and down, ready to volunteer. The point of the story is that it's one thing to believe that somebody can do something. It's another thing to trust yourself to that person. And that's exactly what this creed is talking about. It is not just a mental ascent. It is absolutely putting yourself totally upon him, thrusting your weight upon him and letting him carry you across the treacherous falls of this life. Hallelujah. I did that long ago, and he's never let me fall. He's never disappointed me. I not only believed in him with my mind, I trusted him with my whole life, and I still do that today. Have you trusted him with your whole life? And there's one last point in this great creed of the church which ends this entire verse and chapter. He is manifested but also received up into glory. Now that's important. Now what would it have been like if heaven had turned its back on this one and said, sorry, you're not needed here anymore the whole plan would have fallen apart. The bottom would have come out. It would have been like a sack that got wet on the bottom, and when you picked it up, everything inside fell out. But the point is, he was received up into glory. He completed the work, and heaven stood up. Heaven literally rose to its feet when Jesus Christ came marching into heaven again. After 33 plus years down here, not walking in with a kingly robe, but with wounds in his hand and in his feet, wound in his side, marked by the foolishness of men, but every ounce a Redeemer, a Savior, a triumphant Lord and King and Master of the whole world. He came back in and they received him. In the glory. Hallelujah. Can you imagine the shouting and the exaltation on the day when his work was done and he went back to heaven and was received by the hosts of eternity? Nobody else could sit down at the right hand of God, but he did without shame. Without any apprehension, he marched over and he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he began praying for us from that moment until this. Received up, exalted at the right hand of God, Hebrews 1 3 sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and Revelation 1 verses 12 through 18 declares, I am alive forevermore. He has become eternal. And because he lives, we shall live with him. This whole creed centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ. If somebody says, I'm a Christian, then quiz them. Christianity is Christ. Do you have Christ in your life? Do you love Christ with all your heart? Is Jesus Christ the main focus of your life? Because That's what this creed is all about. Jesus Christ, the main focus. Until we do sing, He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all that I need. It was interesting that earlier, when the Wilsons were leading us in worship, they chose to sing that beautiful chorus He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we didn't converse about that, but when we read Philippians 2, did you notice that that's exactly what Paul said about Jesus when he was writing to the Philippian believers? God has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, now get this, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, man. I went home last night, crawled into bed and was thinking about my sermons for today, while my wife was using that wrinkle cream. <laughs> Haven't got her converted yet. But if it makes her feel better, it's, it's worth that little investment anyway. So I was lying there thinking about this, this text, this tremendous oration, this creed, that Paul wrote to Timothy, and then I thought about the companion text in Philippians 2, and suddenly I got all excited, as much as you can get excited, lying in bed. But I thought, oh, how glorious this is that the scoffers today, the people that get us so upset with the way they think and the way they talk and their profanity, and their inability to understand how wonderful Jesus is, and the Herods, and the Pharaohs, and all of the wicked of the past, as well as the present, and any that come in the future, every one of them is going to have to bow their knee to my Jesus. And every one of them is going to have to confess that Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. I just dropped off to sleep with this great peace flooding my soul that the one I know and talk to every day, the one that loves me even when I'm unlovable, is the one that they're going to have to bow their knee to and their tongues are going to have to say, your Lord, you are Jesus. The Lord. Oh, man, I get goosebumps just thinking about that. Some of it folk I have had to deal with who just don't want to even talk about him or even think that he's anyone any different than somebody else. They're going to have to stand before him and say, you're Jesus the Lord. Oh, boy. <laughs> I want them to get saved, but if they don't get saved, good deal! They have to bow their knee And they're going to have to open their mouth and say, Jesus, you are Lord. Glory to God. That makes me feel good. Now tonight, we come to the elements that represent this creed. We come to take the bread and to lift the cup to our lips to testify that he's everything we need, that through his sacrifice we find healing and wholeness, through his shed blood we find the forgiveness of our sins. The the bread and the cup do not save us, but partaking of the bread and cup say, I have believed in him with all of my heart, And I confess him by partaking of these elements, symbolic of his act of grace and mercy for me. I want you to be excited about that identification tonight. I don't want it to be just another communion. I don't want it to be just another taking a piece of bread and taking a cup and we do it and then we go home. I want it to be something real. As you think about this creed and all that the revelation of the Holy Spirit has said about him. I want you to just revel in him. I want you to think about him. I want you to rejoice in what he has done for you. And just let his presence fill your heart. Let his love flood your soul. If you're here weak in body, let his healing power flow as we take the wafer and break it and eat it because he is Jehovah Rophi, our healer. With his stripes, we are healed. And I'm believing with you tonight for healing. And as we take the cup, let us be united in spirit. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. Let us come and partake without any twinge of conscience, knowing that we are free through his sacrifice of blood. Let's bow together.